Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Yes. Father John and Father Michael Lawrence Rapp. Hey, hey, hey. Coming at you. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Roma, bella Roma. It's been rainy the last few days, but uh, did you hear it's been snowing back home in Denver? No, still? Yeah, I was playing spike ball last Sunday, and uh, and they got blasted with snow again, so they're despairing that spring's never going to come, but I'm kind of feeling like, hey, you know what? I wish we had some snow. I would hold on to the snow. I miss the snow. I miss the snow. I think that's part, of our, uh, part of our shtick here. I was just trying to get a confession out of Father Mike before we began, because um, he works up in his office, um, contrary to my liking, instead of the rare books, but he does it so he can listen to music. Yeah, I like the background music. And you were listening to something, gosh, this is probably a couple weeks ago, it's all a blur, April is kind of a blur, but it was like uh, Motown, it was something oh, like Oh yeah, that. that's it. You had kind of a Motown day. Oh yeah, and Sp- it was Spotify, it was Motown day. Spotify Motown, and then it worked into your dreams, I thought, something like, I thought you had some crazy kind oh, of, I don't Motown know. Motown dreams. Motown dreams, but... Uh, the Jackson 5. Is that is that your favorite of the Motown? I do like Jackson 5. Yeah. I don't really, I, I I don't know the names and everything. It's like when you put the music on, you recognize. We used to listen to, um, my parents would listen to Cool 105. Uh, cool 105. You know, like Great Times, Good Oldies. Good Oldies, Cool 105. I grew up going into uh, cool concerts, actually. So all yeah. these like oldies bands, these guys like in their 70s still up there. But I think I probably got a taste from Motown from my, it's, it's like nostalgic or something. I don't think they can call them oldies anymore. Now I think it's the hits of the 60s and the 70s, Cool 105. What's wrong with oldies? Well, I, I guess eighties like is kind of oldies now. Oh, you know? <laughs> really? Yeah, if you're listening to. Well, I don't like eighties, so I'm not into oldies anymore. So, what made you break from the typical like Justin Bieber work day to go back to? Oh, I Motown? mix it up, John. Yeah. I mix it up. <laughs> uh, Annette Lussain is a, a German jazz singer. I like to uh, listen to. Okay, Jan Tiersen is a what is he called? A minim- minimist minimalist. Uh, piano composer. Do you ever do uh, Scandinavian lounge music? No, but I'd look into it. That was uh, Father Peter Musset when I was up in Boulder with him. He had a um, Scandinavian lounge music phase. and I like lounge music of yeah. different types. That's just the right thing, because if I listen to like pop music that I do like, um, and I confess, um, it will be distracting to the studies. Yeah. Because I, I, I need to be able to read without... like. Singing along, yeah. or kind of, oh, I remember that. I, I don't like know it. how you, I don't know how you can study to that, especially when you're reading Syriac translations of Acts and whatever nonsense you're doing. I almost you fell off the fell off the uh, elliptical machine listening to "Suit and Tie" by uh, Justin Timberlake and uh, you get dancing. Too excited? I started dancing. Oh, you were dancing, and you know how I dance like a refrigerator. And uh, you so are pretty bad. I uh, I literally almost crashed off the thing, and the guy next to me was looking at me like, "What are you doing?" So it's a good song. This is just a kind of a warning to anybody. You know, if you're studying Syriac or on an elliptical, listening to I like the song Justin Mir- Bieber. Mirrors, mirrors. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So Timberlake. We're usually about five years behind on this hip hip hop stuff, but yeah. uh, but well, uh, I don't. Motown is timeless, so you're good. You're good on that. Oh, that's so. right, and a beautiful sound. I wish that would come back. Well, I guess it kind of has with Bruno. Oh yeah, Mars. that's true. I don't know. Well, we're trying to be relevant because this topic is absolutely the nerdiest. Oh, of nerds. is that what you're trying? Yeah, to do? I was trying to kind of you know. No, how do we, no, no. Push up we... your glasses. Get ready for. All something. right, here we go. Oh yeah. Ooh. 
well, four, five, six, nine, twelve. I have 12. to say, I'm not that I'm like uh, planning on giving you like a, a fantastic content filled podcast here, but we just uh, moonlighted on Catholic Bites, uh. an eight minute podcast of. Uh, Catholic culture, I don't know, something like that. Something like that. Uh, but it is eight minutes, and what I just bombed. We were terrible. It was terrible. I joked. No, we put, John did really good. I joked that we but put... But I was just like, it was about Mary and the church, and he says, well, tell me about why this topic is important, and I was just like, duh, uh, well, <laughs> Mary's really great, and so the host says, thank you. John, <laughs> you study this stuff. Why don't you tell us about it? And that was it. That was like all I got. Yeah, I joked on it that we put the bites in Catholic bites. Oh yeah. But uh, they didn't think that was very funny. Nor did they think anything we said was funny. <laughs> yeah. They don't understand though. It takes us eight minutes to kind of. Yeah, we got to warm up. Kind of get going, you know. It's it's uh, you got to kind of warm up a little bit. You can't just jump right into it. And uh, yeah, so that that was comfortable. They were very kind to let us do that. But I don't think we'll be invited back. I don't, uh, yeah. Not. But that's okay, because we'll we got see. we got our own podcast, so we can waste more time. So, Well, I hate to make you nervous about nerdy stuff. but Catholic nerds now that I, they know. This is about content. This content. show is about content. This show is about learning new content. Yeah. You're going to learn Catholic stuff today. You're going to learn about Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls. It's like Jewish stuff. Yeah, it is kind of Jewish stuff. 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 But it, it fits into the whole Catholic picture. Exactly. And hopefully I'll be able to explain that. But you... Uh, you, what do you know about 4Q521? Well, not much. I saw the Dead Sea Scrolls in San Diego, of all places. Really? I was with my brother, and we were out there for a wedding. Actually, I wasn't even invited to the wedding. I crashed the wedding, which was really funny because I got to see the bride for the first time. as It was Paul Vogrens' wedding, and the bride came in, and I was like, wow, she's beautiful. But that was, And then she looked at me. She literally made eye contact with me as she was processing and like, who the hell is that guy? Who is that guy? So I didn't stay long at the reception. But we went to the, my brother was like, we got to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we saw them and they were tiny, but really interesting. Yeah. And so I'm excited to learn more about, I think I one, what one of them, is that what we're, one of the We're going to look at two of them. Papyra? Is this papyra? Yes, they are papyrus. Ah, okay. <laughs> So that's when you take a plant and you press it into a piece of paper so you can write on it. Ah, okay. There was two I, kinds of... I'm already learning stuff. Two, Yeah, in the ancient world, you could write on two things that were permanent and make scrolls out of it. There's parchment you can make out of um, skins of okay. animals. You stretch that out and then write on it. Uh, it's like leather, you know, Yeah. but really thin. Or you could uh, push these plants, of, these papyrus plants together in reeds and then make sheets for, hmm. for scrolls. So that's probably what you saw. Papyrus. Dead Sea Scrolls or Papyrus? Uh, there's both, but oh. it's mostly Papyrus. Okay. <laughs> that's a very technical. 4Q512. <laughs> I like am pa- on the edge of pa- my pa- seat. Pa- paper making. You, you gotta. <laughs> you gotta. You gotta take Stuff take you me know now. about ancient paper making. I got okay, come so, sail okay. away stuck in my head. We, this is. I, I, I gotta give you a little background. So you know where the Dead Sea Scrolls? Is. I think it's the lowest point in the world. Qumran. Is that right? I think so. The Dead Sea. Some that that or the Death Valley in I California. Think, I think they told me when I was out there. You lived out there recently, but when I went out there, that was probably eight years ago. I think they told us this is the lowest point so on Earth in terms of non, not below two water. Two large bodies of water in the Holy Land. What are they? 
the Sea of Galilee. And? The Dead Sea. Okay, so this is the yes. ladder. Are we doing Very quiz good. show? I told you, no quiz show. Yeah, I know. I'm not I hate to quiz, quiz show. show. I get. I still have nightmares about the but last one. But I'm just one. proving that, that you know things. Uh, yeah, I don't know much. Okay, so at this. the Dead Sea in 1947, there were some Bedouin shepherds who were just kind of screwing around, climbing rocks as they do. And uh, one throws a rock into, as the story goes, throws a rock into a cave and hears it shatter something. So he goes up there and he looks and he finds some scraps of paper in an old jar. And uh, he takes them to the market and he sells them on the black market. Right? On the black market. Yeah. And, but he remembers where he was. Some of them go back and they find some more of these things. So they only find a few of these things. And, well, I mean, black market. It's not like anyone's interested. Right. You know, some Bedouin finds... I'm thinking of like, like you know... Junk paper. Roman or, black market where you're buying like selfie sticks and splat balls and oh, stuff. Yeah. Is it not this kind well, of Well, now market? they have people who, sh- who sell like shady coins. Okay. Like archaeological finds that you're not allowed to like export, but you can buy them from the, the locals, you know. Uh, it wasn't quite like that, but took them to... Um, once they found enough of these these scrolls, uh, they took them to the local patriarch. I can't remember which which one. It was one of the Orthodox patriarchs in Jerusalem who bought them and then eventually sold them to others, uh, mm. particularly in the United States. At one point, there was um, there was an ad in the New York Times selling Dead Sea Scrolls. Really? Yeah. Uh, someone, just a collector, had said, here's some old you know, an- antique stuff. But no one really knew what it was yet. Um, eventually... 11 caves were discovered with, um, with scrolls in them. And, uh, and the biggest find was in Cave 4, where... Um, 4Q, would you say? Well, oh, Q is for oh. Qumran. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, so then uh, you have uh, hundreds of, of old documents that were found and discovered there. Uh, when they finally looked at them and um, realized what they were, that they were... Um, written from the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century B.C., they realized this is some of the oldest biblical literature and uh, manuscripts that exist in uh, that have ever been found. So they became very important, became very exciting finds, um, and um, have contributed a lot to our picture of Judaism in those last few centuries before the, um, before the coming of Christ or the Common Era. So now you're sounding like a real scholar. The common era. The common era. B-C-E. I know. I shouldn't have said that. Uh-oh. Um, no, I understand. Okay, but this is good. This is really this is important stuff to know. So they're a big find. I'm going to tell you why they're a big find for us as Catholics. All right. So they're 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 interesting for Jewish history. They're interesting for history generally, but they're interesting for Catholics because in the 20th century, really the 19th and the 20th century, you had a certain um, shift in the way of thinking about the Bible and um, uh, looking at the Bible. Um, it, it, it put into doubt whether um, the Bible expresses what Jesus really thought and who Jesus really was, or if it really just expresses what his followers turned him into as a legend about, about Jesus and kind of turned his message into this whole picture of a new religion or a, a religious founding. Now, this is the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. <laughs> no, not yet. This okay. is just tw- In, 19th and 20th century 19th history century biblical Started reassessing studies. the whole tradition of Christianity by looking at history critically. Right. Uh, Which is why poor biblical exegetes in this house get 
made fun of and thrown tomatoes because at and because you're destroying you're destroying the research foundations of our our faith and well yeah. it's too late i think we're trying <laughs> to clean up a whole mess yeah yeah so true. basically uh, you have this attitude that grew that said uh, there's a distinction between the jesus of history and the jesus of faith you might right. have heard those yeah, yeah, yeah. terms but that idea was that uh, the Jesus of history was a nice guy who walked around and said things like the golden ru- rule, do unto others what uh, you would have them d- uh, do to you, right? right? Uh, be nice to people. And he was, uh, he was kind of uh, confused and uh, mistakenly killed as a revolutionary, but he was just kind of a nice guy. Right. And then his, uh, his followers turned him into this religious founder and kind of invented Christianity. So you can read a lot of books that are still being written um, under the influence of this new perspective on history that say that uh, the New Testament literature does not represent who Jesus was, but represents the religion that came after him. And that our religion, Christianity, is just a reflection of Paul's thought, for example, or the um, teams, communities of believers that followed Jesus. Okay? Yep. Have you seen that problem? I, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I read a book on this. I actually have a class called The History of Exegesis right now, and so I'm, I'm oh, getting nice. um, better acquainted with... Uh, and Tim Gray was really good on this, uh, our professor back. Uh, he really kind of showed this that this is a really critical situation where this all kind of came about. But I'm happy you're doing yeah. it, because I can't. So I yeah, can't well, understand it. So. So one of the one of the things that the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls has done is has changed that perspective about first century history um, in two particular ways. One is that um, the Bible that was most frequently used, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, in the New Testament, in the Greek writings of the New Testament, is called the Septuagint. You know the Septuagint version right. of the Bible, yep. but Scholars, the historians were saying the, the Septuagint is just a Greek style of reporting the Old Testament scriptures. Its use in the New Testament means that these were all Greeks. They weren't Jews, really. Uh, they, they weren't using Hebrew. They weren't using older sources. Um, they were more Greeks, maybe converts to Judaism, but th- they were um, defined by their Greco-Roman culture. And that... Um, they they were the ones who invented uh, Christianity. And so it it came up in a Greek setting rather than a Jewish setting. Jesus was a Jewish preacher, but then these, these kind of Greco-Hellenized um, uh, followers really took it and ran with it. And then it flourishes, of course, and develops theologically in the Greek world, right. using Greek philosophy right. and Roman law, for example. And that's how it became Christianity. But they'll say, the historians who are skeptical will say that uh, it doesn't reflect um, the same origins as Jesus. The followers aren't of the same origins as Jesus. So the Dead Sea Sea Scrolls, one thing that was discovered was that um, this group that that lived near the Dead Sea was using um, the Septuagint, the same Bible... In um, in Hebrew, so it was using forms from the Septuagint that we recognize, uh, but was using it in Hebrew rather than in Greek. Hmm. So it's possible that um, 
everyone had access to Hebrew versions and that all Jews were using things that are similar to the, the particular version of the Old Testament scriptures as, uh, as the New Testament writers, like Paul and the Catholic epistles and the gospel writers. Okay, so the importance of the Septuagint has been revived, and it's been recognized as a Jewish reality, not just a Greek one. So recap. For the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated back to the years prior to Jesus. Yeah. But not much. Right. And they reflect that the they were using a Hebrew text that was based on the Septuagint, which was from third century. Yeah. And uh, even BC. some there and, and even though this community really valued Hebrew, there were also Greek manuscripts there. Right. So it was still valued um, the Greek translation itself, the okay. Septuagint was important for that community. So it's it's generally important for all Jews. You can't say anymore, no historians can say, that the Septuagint was not important for people of the first century. Okay. Gotcha. So that's... Ich bin einverstanden. Is that right? I'm studying... I just started studying German like a month ago, so... Ich verstande. Ich verstehe sie. Ich verstehe sie. Okay. I understand. Okay, good. Okay, is continue. This German, German for the historians? Yeah, I have to practice even... This is all. We have to keep doing this, so... Okay. okay, so the first thing is the Septuagint. It revived the Septuagint. Revived Septuagint, okay. Okay, and the second contribution the Dead Sea Scrolls gives to us is um, particulars about the um, theology expressed in the New Testament... That is that shows that it preceded the New Testament in Judaism. So it existed before the New Testament. It was not an invention of Greek thought that was imposed on this uh, Jesus movement. Okay. Mm. Okay. So there are some particular things that have to do with messianism, some things with ecclesiology. That's right. For example, the fact that you could have a spiritual temple, uh. or that the temple could be uh, that a community could be described as the temple different than the temple in Jerusalem, the physical building yeah. with its rituals. There uh, was already that shift away from the temple as a building right. to the temple to as a community, the ah. right? So th- for a long time it was thought that that, that concept was a kind of spiritualizing of Judaism, an invention, but it existed before, even before Jesus. Okay, um, the other one is this idea of a Messiah, which um, seemed for a while to be just a particularity of a small group of Jews. And it seems with the dead discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that Messianism was very strong movement in Judaism generally um, when, when Jesus came around. So the, the point of those things is to say Jesus himself would have been aware of these ideas and would probably be, have been promoting them. Hmm. Um, that he was... Um, that he himself was a Messiah, and that he could come and save uh, save the people of Israel, that had meaning for him um, even before his followers kind of reflected that or, after yeah, the resurrection right. or something like that, or after their the death of their leader or something like that. So Jesus himself, even from the from his childhood, would have been aware that God is going to provide a Messiah and He's coming, and um, so. When he realizes that this is him, or he's told this is him, whatever, however that happened, he would know what that meant right. because it was a category in the first century. Question: This is going back a step. Dead Sea Scrolls, huge number of manuscripts. What percent are what we would call the Bible, and what percent are like um, extra biblical writings that help us to, you know, like something that's not the Book of Isaiah, but it's talking about the Messiah, that kind of thing. Like, what, what would be the, 
rough kind of breakdown. Right. So I don't know exactly the it's percent, a, yeah, percentages. Question, um, I'd have to look that up, but it's something like 50%. So you have almost 700 squirrels that have been um, pieced together. So a lot of it has been lost with time and disintegrated. But the ones that have been able to um, have been translated and discerned, um, about half of them are some pieces of biblical scrolls. They were most interested in the Psalms and in Isaiah. And, um, and then they had these other kind of pseudo-canonical or deuterocanonical books like Enoch and Jubilee that were really important. And then all kinds of scrolls, about um, 50%, I think, of um, different works that we had never seen before. That, and, and a lot of them are what we call sectarian texts. Okay. That is, they belong to that particular community and their way of thinking. Okay, called the Essene community. Well, it's argued, but no, okay. I, I do think they're Essenes. Okay, sorry. We knew about Essenes before the Dead Sea Scrolls, but then okay. we think that they're related to this the This community that put all their junk up in these jars. Yep. Okay. 11 caves worth. Okay. Okay, so I have two in particular that are I want to te- teach you about. Are we talking about 4Q, uh, 4Q512? 4Q512. 521. And 11Q13. 11Q13. Okay. So the scrolls are identified by a number that belongs to the cave or, or that um, coordinates the, with, with the cave that they were found in. And then the Q stands for Qumran where they were found, the town where they were found. And then uh, the number by which they're listed in uh, the list of scrolls. So four, fourth cave, Q, scroll 521, or text 500. They could only see the smile on your face oh, as you're I presenting this. I know this is like... 4Q521. Okay, 4Q521. So Here we go. The reason this is trying important... Trying to hold my excitement you have to sort. So you had to sort through 520 different scrolls to find this yeah. little bit um, that says... Uh, about it talks about an anointed one that the heavens and the earth will listen to. Okay, so we're talking about a what is anointed one in uh, Hebrew? Christos. Okay, that's Greek. Hebrew? Messiah? Messiah, Mashiach. Okay. Mashiach. And Christos in Greek. Okay, so before Jesus comes about, there's this talk of an anointed one who heaven and earth will obey. But it um, it refers certain scriptures to him. It says um, well, and it says about him, for he will honor the pious upon the throne of an eternal kingdom. Okay, Jesus sets his apostles upon thrones, right, and gives them an, a kingdom. And Jesus is continually talking about a kingdom. For he will honor the pious upon the throne of an eternal kingdom, freeing prisoners, giving sight to the blind, straightening out the twisted. And forever shall I cling to those who hope, and in his mercy and in the fruit not be delayed. For he will heal the badly wounded and will make the dead live. He will proclaim good news to the poor, and he will lead... Okay, we run into blanks. But from what we've heard... Blank spot on the papyrus. Yep, exactly. There's a bunch of holes in them. And uh, so you run into a lot of, like, kind of short phrases. But what we did here in a continual phrase was that he will heal people, and he will make the dead live, and he will proclaim good news to the poor. Okay, this healing and bringing good news to the poor comes from what? Do you know? In the Gospels? What Old Testament text? Oh, geez. Uh, is it Isaiah? Yeah. 55? Suffering servant? No. No, close. 
It's 61. 61. Okay. That so, was a miracle that I even had within the right book. So uh, It's good. Okay. That's very good. Isaiah 61 talks about um, proclaiming good news to the poor and about healing. This is something that, uh, in that context, isn't explicitly called something for a Messiah, but was then associated with Messiah. With the Messiah. By, okay. And that the dead should live is a reference to Elijah and the coming of, of Elijah, the return of Elijah. Later in, the, in 4Q521, you hear that the fathers will return towards the son and about a blessing of the Lord and his goodwill. Fathers returning to their sons comes from Malachi, the end of Malachi, the very last lines, and is a promise made by God that he would send Elijah back. You remember, Elijah went up into heaven in that fiery mm-hmm. chariot, but he's coming back to restore the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. Mm. Okay, so this reference says that this, this will apply to a Messiah who is also compared with Isaiah 61. All right. You, you so 4Q512 is like synthesizing. 4Q521. 521, sorry, is, is, is bringing together different Old Testament scriptures to kind of deepen the understanding of, of a Messiah. They're articulating for us how the Jewish community there has matured its understanding of what the Messiah is. Right. It's all kind of converging. And if you, if you don't have the, the scrolls, there are a lot of historians who will argue that there is no Messianism in the Old Testament, wow. that that was an invention of the Christians, and uh, that it was not a Jewish expectation. Really? Yeah. That That's was, huge. That was argued for a yeah. while. But this is very clear evidence that there's a particular person called the Messiah who's going to come back and do these things. Hmm. Heal people, raise the dead, preach good news to the poor, Isaiah 60, 61, and then represent Elijah returned. Okay. That's 4Q521. Whoa. Right? <laughs> Elijah and Isaiah back together. Um, now you have 11Q13. Cave 11. 11 Q13. Qumran, not, number 13. Number 13. That's Some also guy just called, pulled it out, and this was the 13th one he found. Well... They they classify them according to like um, genre, uh, okay. so that's rather complicated. Okay. But um, eleven Q thirteen is also called eleven Q Melchizedek, and it talks about a Melchizedek. Um, you remember that priest uh, king of yep. Salem, Jerusalem, from Genesis fourteen, who um, Shem, who no, blesses blesses Abraham. Inside oh no, joke. we're not sorry. getting into that, that argument. But this one, this document has Melchizedek as a messianic figure who's going to come back and inaugurate a year of jubilee. In this same document, you find reference to Isaiah 61. And liberty will be proclaimed to the poor to free them from the dead of all their iniquities. So he's talking about bringing, uh, bringing liberty through this year of jubilee, announcing a year of jubilee, and, um, and freeing them from debt to the poor. But the debt is specifically from sin. So there's kind of a salvation uh, implication. Okay? So Melchizedek is coming back. This scroll gives precedent to Hebrews, where uh, the letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament, where Jesus is compared with Melchizedek, the right, great high right. priest. It was thought for a long time that the Christians invented Jesus, the Melchizedek high priest, because Jesus didn't come from the line of Levi, so he can't be a real priest. How is he supposed mm. to make atonement for anybody? How is he supposed to forgive sins on the cross? He's not even a priest. He can't give a sacrifice. Well, they didn't even invent it. There was an expectation 
before, uh, and in Judaism at the time, Connected that Melchizedek. Melchizedek's coming back mm. to declare a year of Jubilee, to be a preacher, and then to make atonement for everyone. Mm. Okay? Yeah. And in 521, as we had seen Isaiah and Elijah together, um, you, you have particular references in, uh, in the New Testament with um, John the Baptist being compared to Elijah, and then this great question, who are you? Are you Elijah who has come back? And Jesus sort of evades that question in Luke 7.22. I think because he wants to suggest, he says, when people come and ask from John the Baptist, who are you? He tells them, go and tell him what you see. The people are healed. Uh, good news is preached to the poor. The dead are raised. These are all of these particular combinations of Isaiah 61 and the Elijah tradition from Malachi. Hmm. And uh, that that come together in Jesus' own identification of himself. Okay? So there's precedent in, uh, in Judaism before the time of Jesus. Jesus probably did not read these documents, but these were traditions that were going around. It was in the air. It yeah, was it was in, in the, the culture, air. yeah. So Jesus' own identity comes from this, and it really undermines all of these arguments of the, of the historians to say, Jesus didn't know about any of this stuff. Yeah. Messianism, right. resurrection, uh, atonement, uh, being a high priest uh, like Melchizedek. But the Christians made, made all this stuff up. Mm. You can't say that. That's Catholic stuff you should know. It's Catholic stuff you should know, mother. I think, uh, I think what's amazing about this is that, you know, you look at the history of the historical critical thing in the last two centuries, and you think, well, it's just train wrecked and it's been bad. But actually, that critique and now overcoming it with this archaeology, it actually kind of strengthens the faith. It's like, no, what we what we always knew is actually now being kind of even more credible because of uh, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. So. But the danger was to give in to that lie yeah. that there's a separation between the historical Jesus, history, and faith. And the, and the Christ And faith, putting yeah. the Christian in the position of saying, well, I don't care what history says. Yeah. The, yeah. I just believe. Well, no, we don't have to just believe. There was really a man who claimed to be this Messiah figure who saved, saved people from their sins and was was raised from the dead by God, yeah. which was a promise to the Jewish people. Well done. Father Nathan Goebel doesn't like it when I when we affirm each other, but I'm going to affirm you. That was very well done because this is very complex stuff, and it's and you took, you know, your your very detailed research, and uh, I at least I understood it. So I think this oh, was uh, well done. I tried to distill it. I hope this isn't too nerdy for no, everybody. It's, it, but it's great. It's exciting stuff. I work on it all the time, and right. I try to give you the best. Well, I think we should, first shout out should go to two people who don't listen to the podcast, but who you had lunch with today. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's start with them. Adela and John Collins yep. are two great Catholic scholars uh, who work at uh, Yale Divinity School at this point. And they've worked in other places in Chicago and in, uh, at Notre Dame. And um, they're uh, fantastic. Yeah, really, I'm really grateful for their influence in my uh, scripture studies. So thank you, Adela and John. Collins. And John. Yep. They're visiting the Biblicum, my school, for a semester to give lectures. And, uh, Father it's been Mike's a joy. looking after Adela and uh, yeah, I've been the Italian teacher, stuff, teacher's so. assistant for teacher's Adela. assistant. Yeah, so very nice. That was well done. I got two shout-outs from our friends, Father Scott Sperry, who came through Rome a couple weeks ago for a wedding, 
and uh, he passed on these two names, the fir- both from Arizona. First is from Mesa, Rhonda Matter, a friend of Father Scott's listening to the podcast, so thank you for listening. Hope you hear this. Shout out to you. And then Samantha Christensen, um, and I think that's her new name, according to Father Scott. I guess she got married or got a new name. I'm not sure. She said, keep the banter. We always love people who oh, say yeah. things like that. So, thank you. So thank you to both of them. That's it for me. Okay, and the... Okay, so my other shout-out is to my uh, archaeology class from Jerusalem. I spent a semester nice. in Jerusalem. I had about a dozen um, Frenchies. They were all mostly from France, one from Canada. And uh, they were kind of my community that semester. Nice. And uh, we traveled around the Holy Land and looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So to all of you, if any of you are listening... I never tell you, we have a French friend, my brother and I, and... Uh, we once said to him, you know, when we make fun of French people, we always say, oh, and he said, what do you do when you make fun of Americans? And they go, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> so, to your French friends, rah, 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 If you could understand it. That's right. Well done. All right, let, wrap it up here. That sound good? Thanks, man. Blessings, everybody. Yeah, blessings. Um, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. That's it for this week. We got uh, Olaf and uh, the Global next week. We'll see you soon. Go listen to some Motown.